Welcome back, you poor, unfortunate souls, <laughs> to another episode of the Dole Up and Dreams podcast, where I take a deep dive into the Disney vault. I'm your host, Maddie Limerick, and today I am joined by the award-winning playwright, actress, and all-around Disney lover, Ashley Griffin. This week, we are discussing the beloved Disney classic, The Little Mermaid. I want you to picture it. It's November 1989. Shoulder pads are high, but the hair is higher! Brightly colored kids' cartoons are dominating the airwaves during Saturday morning lineups. Cher is turning back town! And Madonna is taking over the planet by storm with bold, sexual energy on her MDNA World Tour. The Oakland Athletics had just won the World Series, and a certain red-headed little mermaid was about to steal the hearts of the world and kick off a period we know as the Disney Renaissance. Plus, her appearance would soon lead to the release of some of the most beloved Disney classics of all time. But like any good fairy tale, we can't start at the end. Though Ariel would hit the silver screen in 1989, to get a good scope, we have to go back a little bit earlier. 23 years earlier. Let's start in 1966. The world had just lost an icon, a dreamer, and a true visionary in Walt Disney, but nonetheless, only a year later, in 1967, the world would see the theatrical release of Disney's 19th animated feature, The Jungle Book. And while this would be the last film release that Walt personally worked on, we know the company continued his legacy for years to come. And while Walt Disney Productions would continue releasing animated films with The Aristocats in 1970, Robin Hood in 1973, and a whole group of films throughout the 70s and early 80s, these films wouldn't quite receive the level of praise that their predecessors did. This kicks off what's come to be known as the Disney Dark Age. During this time, Disney would see a continued decline in animated film reception. The Dark Age would culminate in the colossal, critical flop of 1985's The Black Cauldron. This film will be the subject of a later episode this season, so I won't go in too deep now. So don't forget to check out our Patreon to help us continue to produce the content of your favorite films. Anyhow, the massive financial loss that came with the Black Cauldron caused newly appointed Disney CEO Michael Eisner, I know, to almost end the animation division forever. I know. <laughs> but in true fairy tale fashion, it always gets darkest before the dawn. And in 1986 and in 1987, Disney would release The Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company. Both films boast incredible casts and dive into some really wonderful stories. The moderate success of these films would help reignite faith in the success of animated films division. Soon the company fell so in love with the field again that they would pursue a formula where they would release an animated blockbuster every year or every two years. Around this time, we see a duo come together that would also set a path to success for The Little Mermaid, which was slated at this point for a 1989 release. Disney would start to restructure their animated films in a way that would closely follow the structure of a classic musical, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman would take the lead on the original music and lyrics for Mermaid, as well as Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, all of which have played all over the world and not just in cinemas, but also live on stage thanks to Disney theatrics. And they would bring to life some wildly popular songs, several of which have made the lists of Spotify's most streamed songs of all time. So with its 1989 theatrical release, The Little Mermaid would come to mark the end of the Disney Dark Age and declare the beginning of a new era the Disney Renaissance, an era where Disney animation would find new fans and forge a place in the world of entertainment in a way that it just hadn't before. 
But The Little Mermaid's journey to Disney glory didn't begin with John Musker in the 80s. The idea for Our Little Mermaid goes back to Walt Disney himself in a proposed film anthology of some of Hans Christian Andersen's works back in 1941. The project was ultimately shelved due to an animator strike, but John would eventually pick up the idea for Mermaid, make it his own, and pitch it in the 1980s. However, Disney didn't really want Ariel, and they rejected the project due to the release of Splash, a concurrent project featuring Daryl Hannah as a mermaid that also featured Tom Hanks that was released through their studio Touchstone. For those who may not know, The Little Mermaid is based on a story by Hans Christian Andersen. But like in most Disney retellings of stories, we see a large deviation from the source material. And in this case, that might not be such a bad thing. The Hans Christian Andersen version tells the story of a young mermaid who just wants to be human so that she can be with the man that she has fallen in love with. Now, a sea witch can grant her this, but there's one problem. She will get her legs, but when she walks, there will feel constant pain like she's stepping on glass. But like love often does, she goes through it anyway and arrives to find that the man she loves has fallen in love with someone else. And now part of the original bargain is that she has to make him fall in love with her in three days' time or she will die and turn into sea foam. But ultimately, she's given the choice to kill her love. And her mermaid sisters even sell their hair to get her a knife, but she can't kill him. So she turns into sea foam. You know how mermaids die, apparently. But she feels the sun and realizes that she's become a luminous and earthbound spirit who's joined other spirits like herself who have died in the pursuit of love. Like I said, just a little different than her Disney counterpart. The Little Mermaid would be the first Disney princess movie in over 30 years, with Sleeping Beauty being the last model we saw. And in those 30 years, the world changed in so many ways, and so had the women in it. We saw the civil rights movement, queer rights movement, and the second wave of feminism. The damsel was no longer in need of saving, and though many people have questioned a plot where you would trade your life for a man who may or may not love you, many people connected with Ariel's story. I think the folks at Network 1490 put it best in their History of the Little Mermaid. A link is available in our show notes on our website. Ariel's zest for life and exploration and curiosity for an unknown world above set her apart from the rest of the royal ladies of the Disney canon. And while we still critique the message that a princess sends to the world and the children in it, she would set a new tone for such princesses like Belle, Mulan, Rapunzel, Tiana, and even Anna to follow in her footsteps. Or fin waves, I guess. Now, I'll be discussing a critical view of Ariel as an icon and a voice of feminism with our guest, uh, Ashley Griffin, later in the episode. While the movie's original script would see changes and omissions, like the sibling relationship between Ursula and Triton, and even a song where we find out about Ursula's banishment from Atlantia, and while these were never part of the original story by Anderson, it was a large part of the first script by Disney. It would also see the addition of a classic musical theater, I Want Song, in the form of Part of Your World. Imagineer and YouTube content creator Sarah Sterling describes the I Want Song as a song in a musical, usually early on in its plot, that has the protagonist or hero or heroine laying down exactly what they want. And while this iconic song has become deeply ingrained in pop culture, it almost didn't make the cut. In her video, Down to Disney's Disney History, The Little Mermaid, Sarah Sterling describes Jeffrey Katzenberg's apprehension regarding the song. Katzenberg was the president of Disney's film division, and at the time he continually tried to have the song cut because he felt it was boring and stopped the flow of the film, and it would go over kids' heads. 
After one particular screening, uh, the children in the audience weren't engaged in the song, and one boy dropped his popcorn and was far more concerned about picking it up than he was of watching the musical number. He was also really apprehensive for the movie altogether because he felt it was simply a girl's movie. Like many stories that come from this time in Disney's history, there are conflicting accounts from people involved to Katzenberg himself. I mean, I personally found several different interviews where he presents conflicting information about this very process of this movie and what would go on to happen. The film was such an overwhelming undertaking for Disney that they ended up opening a satellite studio in Florida, which would become the environment for Disney's MGM Studios. And additional animation of just the bubbles will be shopped out to Beijing animated studio Pacific Rim. Yes, you heard that right. One studio handled the individual bubble animations. I love that so much. It's just so Disney. Mermaid would also be the first Disney film since the 1970s classic Bedknobs and Broomsticks to receive an Academy Award, and sadly, would also be the last Disney film to use hand-painted cells. Starting with The Rescuers Down Under, Disney would use a digital technique developed over at Pixar. Despite the fears of Jeffrey Katzenberg, which would become a theme over the rest of the Disney Renaissance, The Little Mermaid was a resounding success with critics and fans alike. The $40 million initial budget was met with a $233 million global box office, and a red-haired mermaid swam into the hearts of generations beyond. If you're interested in knowing more about this story, I highly recommend the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty. It gives a beautiful and very accurate retelling of this era. Now take a gulp, take a breath, because we'll be right back after this break. This week's Small Store Spotlight focuses on Enchanted Thoughts Club. Curated by dynamic duo Desiree and Rod, Enchanted Thoughts Club brings you Disney-inspired enamel pins and t-shirts, perfect for any enchanted adventure. And they want to invite you all to the club. With their love for Disney, they put their hearts, souls, and magical thoughts into every creation. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook at Enchanted Thoughts Club and on their website at EnchantedThoughtsClub.com. And for the next month, Dole Whip and Dreams listeners get 15% off of your purchase from Enchanted Thoughts Club by entering Dole Whip and Dreams, all one word, at checkout. Again, that's 15% off at checkout by entering Dole Whip and Dreams at checkout. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, dreamers. This week is the 30th anniversary of The Little Mermaid, and I couldn't think of anyone else that I wanted on the episode other than my good friend, Ashley Griffin. Ashley, welcome. Hey, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, God, I'm so glad we were able to collaborate because I know you and our friend Case have been able to be on his podcast, and so I'm so happy that we're finally able to do this together. Oh, my gosh. Anytime. I love doing this with you. Great. And so you and I have always kind of bonded over the love of uh, Disney and fairy tales. And so uh, a fun story for everybody. Ashley and I were Merchkins at Wicked together. And so there were many conversations about Disney and Broadway musicals, overfolding T-shirts as we were waiting for, you know, the end of Act One, hear that high note when she flies. Uh, And so this is just why it's super appropriate to have Ashley on the show. So Ashley, if you could like Tell me some of, like, your earliest memories of Little Mermaid and, like, why this movie is so important to you. Sure. Um, so I saw The Little Mermaid in the movie theaters when it first came out, and I was very, very young and tiny. Um, and it had a really huge impact on me. And w- one of the ways that it did was it's what 
initiated my love of fairy tales in general because anyone who knows me knows I'm a little Miss Hermione Granger. And so uh, yeah. <laughs> as a result of The Little Mermaid, I went to the library because I was like, I want to read The Little Mermaid now. And they directed me to the fairy tale section. And I discovered there was a whole fairy tale section. And it's what led me to read all of the original stories and to discover that there were different versions of the fairy tales, depending on what culture you were talking about. And that the Hans Christian Andersen story was very different from the Disney movie. Um, so it really kind of jump-started my love of fairy tales in general. I also grew up in Southern California, so I like surf and snorkel and do all that stuff. So I, you know, was kind of a mermaid in my real life anyway, but it was just, it just became an obsession. And anytime I was near any body of water, I would act out the whole story. And it's, <laughs> you know, one of my top five favorite movies of all time to this day. And I, there's something about Ariel and that just really resonates with me, but the original Hans Christian Andersen story is my favorite story of all time. So this is a very significant piece for me. Oh, that's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it's I also too like I don't think we went to the theater to see it, but I remember the moment that VHS came out, we had one sitting in my house. I'm mm-hmm. fairly certain I wore it out. Um, yeah. But it wasn't actually until probably I was friends with you that I went back and read the the stories. Because um, yeah. I was familiar with the Danny Kaye, uh, like Hans Christian Andersen movie from the, the 40s and 50s. But right. I never like delved into his actual stories. And so, but yeah, Little Mermaid for me, it's the same thing where there was always something about it. I would force kids who were like family friends to act it out with me in the backyard. Yeah. And I always wanted to be Earth Ursula, but they were like, you have to be Flounder or Triton. And I was like, but I want to be Ursula. Why can't I be Ursula? And it wasn't until much later that I figured that out. That's a whole nother mess of things. Um, But yeah, so it's, but this is always one that I keep going back to that I just, I love. And, you know, looking online, the nostalgia for this movie is so rampant and huge. And honestly, I think the nostalgia for this movie for a lot of fans is greater than the nostalgia for almost any other princess movie. Maybe, maybe like sleeping beauty has a ton of fans because she came about when all the boomers were, the boomers were being born. And so a lot of them remember her from seeing it, you know, re-release in theaters and things. But um, yeah, so she's, she, Ariel just has this kind of vibrant presence online. Uh, So uh, obviously this movie is super important to both of us, but Mm -hmm. do you think it was a critical success? Um, I no, I think it was a critical success. I think that the difficulty is that Beauty and the Beast came after it and Mm -hmm. Beauty and the Beast just like, you know, took the cake. There'd never been an animated movie that had been received that way. So I, I think that Little Mermaid kind of started by slipping in under the radar a little bit because it was coming after sort of the Disney dark ages. So people weren't Mm -hmm. necessarily expecting a lot. And then it became this big thing. But by Beauty and the Beast, everybody was primed for it. So I think, um, I think it definitely was a critical success, but it kind of slipped in and rose to that. Whereas Beauty and the Beast Mm -hmm. just kind of hit it out of the park from the get go. So I think compared to Beauty and the Beast, maybe not as much, but I mean, 100% it was a critical success. I mean, everybody was going to see it. They extended it in the theaters. The merchandise for it was unlike any other Disney movie up until that point. So, I mean, I think I think it was very critically successful. Yeah, you are absolutely right. It was a resounding success, especially because like, 
Black Cauldron was 85, which was the biggest flop that the company had ever seen. And I understand why they were freaking out. Um, And then, you know, Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company did well for them. But, like, we're talking, like, $40, $50 million uh, total worldwide. But then you get The Little Mermaid, which just, I think, $233 million. Um, And so I kind of discussed this in the earlier part. It's the the appeal of the Disney animated film uh, started to climb with The Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company. And that's when the the company kind of locked in to this, like, promise of an animated movie every year, two years. Um, But yeah, according to Rotten Tomatoes, it's certified fresh, uh, which is, I guess, for them, it's 90% higher. It's got a 93% critic approval rating and an 88% audience score. And that's over 900,000 users rating the thing. So like, there are some people in there that are like, this is garbage. I hate it. I don't understand why people like it because we have to have the contrarians. But we have a lot of people who like have kids and then make sure their kids are seeing it. And so they're the kids kids of kids who loved it. Um, mm-hmm. There were just some, some fun, uh, some fun reviews uh, from Michael Williamson at the, the LA times, the little mermaid is impudent, grandiose and a multi-level crowd pleaser almost returns the Disney animated features to the glory tradition of the thirties and forties. I think that's a really interesting thought of that mm-hmm. for a lot of people that Disney films hadn't been in kind of a glory day since then. But, right. you know, I think, I think Sleeping Beauty, especially animated-wise and story-wise, though it's a simple story, to me that's kind of peak Disney Gold Age. Like, it's just huge and grandiose and beautiful. Um, And, you know, with this we see nostalgia being a very important driving factor in the development of viewership uh, because of the internet. And Disney fans are some of the most visible and vocal when it comes to being heard, as we both know. (laughs) You grew up near Disneyland and we both, you know, (laughs) we're the internet age, so we grew up with kind of an online presence. Why do you think this movie has such a nostalgic uh, place? It's kind of a nostalgic wonderland, as I like to call it for many people. Why is this the movie they keep going back to? Um, I think it's um, there's a couple reasons for it. I think one is nobody had ever seen a movie like this when it came out. Um, it was a return to the Disney Renaissance in a lot of ways, but it was adding new technology that had come out since then. It was adding new mm-hmm. animation techniques, and in all honesty, it had Howard Ashman, who was one of the greatest storytellers who's ever lived. And the dramaturgy behind it was extraordinary. I mean, in all honesty, the early Disney movies in the Golden Age were incredible and they're amazing films. But it was at a time when, I mean, they were leading the way in animated feature length films existing at all. So, in yeah, all absolutely. honesty, deep, deep dramaturgy was not their number one goal. I mean, no. if you. One of the things that, you know, if we do a Snow White episode that I think is very important to remember is Snow White was intended to be like a feature-length silly symphony with a little mm-hmm. bit more seriousness. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we kind of judge films a little bit differently now, as we should. But all of those early Disney movies were telling a great story, but more interested in the visual medium and seeing what you could do with animation. By the time The Little Mermaid came out, the idea of a feature-length animated film was nothing new. And so it it was suddenly a film that was using these new techniques, but was returning to elements of the golden age, but was actually telling a really phenomenal, fleshed out, complicated story with complicated characters. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that all those things just coalesced at a time when a movie that was doing that from Disney in the animated form had not existed for decades. And it's similar to like, I remember the first time I saw Rent, I had never heard music like that. Now it's, it's commonplace, lots of musicals sound that way, but I think it was a little bit similar with The Little Mermaid that it was like nothing like that had existed in that way before. And so I think it was new. It was extraordinary. It left a powerful impact on people. I think in all honesty, I think that the story, while I know we're going to get into it and I know there's controversy around it, is actually very deep and moving and affecting. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think all those things kind of coalesce to just be this piece that really deeply touched people emotionally. Yeah. 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 I, I agree a thousand percent. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into it a little bit later of kind of how we look at it now because 2019, 2020 kind of changes how we look at everything. Um, yeah. I think you hit on it because this did kick off the Disney Renaissance, what we know as the Disney Renaissance. Um, but those earlier movies in the dark ages, just a little bit before this, um, we saw something that Disney never really had before in feature length films. They had Warner Brothers who did the serials and they were doing animated, you know, television cartoons. Um, but nothing that was happening was on the same scale as Disney until Don Bluth left Disney and exactly. started his own studio. And so, you know, Secrets of Nim crashed as hard as Black Cauldron did. But then, like, we got fi- we got The American Tale. We got yeah. Land, Before, Land Time. Before Time. And and so those are also just such stunning nostalgic movies that like, you know, Universal still trying to tap into um, that. I think it made Disney have to step up its game because they did yeah. have competition for the first time. And also it's like, if they can do better, why not do better? You know, I'm going to talk about it on our Great Mouse Detective episode, um, but it's the idea that like, they started using um, computer backgrounds for some of them. Now they would trace over them. It wasn't in the same way that we know digital rendering um, to do kind of some of their large scale scenes. But like little mermaid was also the last hand drawn cells that would be used through a whole movie for Disney. And so I think the visuals, because even looking at beauty and the beast compared to this, you can tell that like the stretching backgrounds in that castle were achieved from digital composite, which isn't a bad thing because it really, again, we kept growing instead of being stagnant, but there's something so beautiful about those hand-drawn backgrounds. It's like why I keep going back to Mary Poppins, the original film, because those painted backdrops are just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that no matter what we do with digital, it's, and it's so cool we can do with it. And I'm glad that we have it, but There's just something about some of these old hand-drawn cells and the hand-painted cells that are just – they're just breathtaking. Um, And for me, a lot of it now as like a queer adult, um, something I never realized at the time was why Ursula stuck out to me was that she she represented an other that we had never seen. Like I've always also been a plus-size kid. So Mm -hmm. like – we saw this person that like owned their body as a large person. Um, she had magic. She was bravadness, but she was cunning and smart and daring and not all the things that we'd seen like heavy people to be at that point. I mean, we just also gotten Heather's the same year where, you know, there's a fat person that's just brutalized the whole movie. Now, granted, mm-hmm. I hope the children seeing little mermaid were also not watching Heather's, but who am I to, to judge <laughs> parenting in the 1980s? Um, but you know, I think you know, I think the two go together now in nostalgia. But I think for me also now knowing that like 
she represented a queerness that had never been one in animated films two had never really been in a mainstream film except for divine in hairspray like these these are things that were just so important that now as an adult i go oh and honestly i pin her and cruella de vil um and maleficent to a point with this idea of pushing villains as like an equal um popularity to princesses yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, because now you've got Not So Scary and, and the Disneyland Christmas or Halloween party are like some of those busy times of year because people want to see those villains live in the parks. And Ursula's at Disneyland Paris this year for the first time. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so I think for me, it's a lot of that, which, you know, I didn't even have words for it as a child. And even growing up into my early 20s, I didn't have words for it. But um, I mean, you know, there's a lot to say about it because then it brings in that idea of where we talk about is Little Mermaid a feminist film talking about queer coding of Disney villains and whether that's like um, a positive thing ultimately or whether it's uh, damaging to queer people. But if anyone's interested in hearing about that, I'll be talking about that in our Patreon episode for this. So if you guys head over to our Patreon uh, and it's five bucks a month, gets you two additional episodes, you'll be able to listen to all my extra content. So that's just my little plug in the middle of the episode. Um, Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Ashley. let me let me throw this out there as well because first of all, Lindsay Ellis does a really brilliant YouTube episode on queer coding in Disney that I highly recommend everybody check out. But one thing that I think is it's a more subtle thing, but I think it's important is um, first of all, not many people know the origin of the original Little Mermaid story. Now, what the actual story is is a whole separate thing that I'm sure we'll get into. But Hans Christian Andersen, who wrote it, was a very complicated figure. Um, he was socially awkward. People were known to cross the street to avoid running into him. Um, but his life was marked by a series of unrequited loves. One of those that's heavily implied, and we have some evidence for it, is that he had an unrequited love for his foster brother, Edvard. Um, this is decently apparent. Um, we have no idea how Edvard responded But a lot of people feel that The Little Mermaid was written by Anderson when Edvard got engaged to a woman. And so the idea then is that the mermaid is him, the prince is Edvard, and the princess is this other woman. And so in some ways, the character of The Little Mermaid herself is representative of somebody who's gay in a, a world that is not accepting of them. I mean, I think, I think the character of the little mermaid can be metaphoric for anybody who sort of feels like they don't really belong. But I think that it's also really important because, you know, Howard Ashman was a gay man. Mm-hmm. He, he was living with AIDS and he felt that he couldn't say anything to anybody because he was going to get fired. He only said something when it was like, I'm going to die. And so I think that in addition to Ursula being queer coded, I think that, I wouldn't say it's coded in in the way that maybe mm-hmm. Disney villains are, but I do think that in some ways there's subtextual queer representation in Ariel herself, and that yeah. certainly and that certainly had never been done. And I think that that um, for anybody who's felt different is one of the reasons why the story feels so powerful. And I think it's an important thing to to look at and read into The Little Mermaid to a degree because then you sort of in a way, get two cool queer characters if you're reading it metaphorically in that in that sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. That's such a hot take. And honestly, you know, it's funny for someone that wants to put queerness on everybody who is me. I am that person. Um, you know, it's so interesting to think about that because honestly, in a lot of new articles that I've read, because it's interesting that like, 
every time The Little Mermaid has an anniversary, there's always a slew of articles about it. The last one, really interestingly, was the 25th, which uh, coincided with the Frozen release. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, so the more recent ones, there are a bunch from this year talking about how a lot of uh, people who are now trans have come out as trans also identify mm-hmm. with Ariel and honestly Ariel's journey to love and acceptance by Eric, but also mm-hmm. like that ultimately Triton, her father is the one that gives her her legs in the end, her permanent legs, her mm-hmm. transition comes from her father. And so, you know, I don't, as, yeah. as someone who is not trans, I don't want to uh, project that, but it was interesting that like five or six different articles, um, you know, from, from different writers and things all, found some connectiveness to their trans identity from Ariel as a child, which I, I think is beautiful. And, you know, for me, I love comic books. And so the X-Men has yeah. always been that representative of the other. And honestly, that's why Ian McKellen agreed to play Magneto because sure. as a, as a gay man, they represented that other. And I think because so many marginalized groups didn't have representation for so mm-hmm. long, we looked to project onto yeah. some characters and really that projecting was not too far off no, generally not at, all. Um, not at all yeah and so so like no movie's perfect and there will always be little things that we want to tweak in a modern world you know it's it's impossible to not find things from you know the 80s that we find questionable and cringeworthy um do you think there are any of those things in this film um th- things that are problematic well, things that may not even uh, go heavily into problematic, but like things that make us cringe a little, things that we go, oh, I don't know if we could get away with that now. Well, so here's the thing. Honestly, and I know this is controversial for me, I don't think so. I know there are a lot of people who feel differently. And in all honesty, I personally disagree with a lot of those things. And I have reasons why I do so. But I mean, the biggest complaints I hear about the movie are... You know, oh, she gives up her voice for a man and she has to be rescued. And a lot of people have issues with that. And I, in all honesty, very much disagree with those arguments um, Mm -hmm. for many reasons. I don't know if that's something you want me to get into now or if you want to wait, but. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait just a little bit. I I have a, I have a prompt for us in just a bit, but I agree with you. Now, uh, something I of course went to Facebook um, and started asking everybody between Facebook and Instagram because there's a question of. Is Little Mermaid okay even when you feel this nostalgia love to necessarily show it to your small child until they kind of understanding – because we're trying to get to this point where we don't necessarily code gender norms into kids and they're like, yeah, well, I love it, but I'm not going to show it to my kid yet. Or, yeah, of course I'm going to show it to my kid, but we're going to have a conversation about what these things mean. But I kind of agree with you, and we're going to get into it a little bit, but I think if you are just looking at the surface of, well, she don't give up her legs for a man, and that's stupid. You know, it's one of those things. It goes way beyond that, and if you're just looking at the surface, I think you might be missing something. So like we're, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're dancing around this. So let's just go ahead and dive in. Um, a big thing I'm going to do on every episode is talking about where we are in 2019, 2020, some crazy things have happened in the world. We're in a very different place. Um, then, you know, we were definitely 1989, 99, even a few years ago, the world is in a completely different place. How, you know, you've, you, we've kind of talked about it a little, how do you think this movie stands in 2019, 2020? Um, um Oh, well, I mean, I, again, I think it depends on people's point of view. From my point of view, I think it holds up really well. Um, I think it's phenomenal. 
I don't, I, I, I adore it. Um, clearly there are cultural conversations that have been taking place now that are wonderful that were not taking place when the movie came mm-hmm. out. Um, so I think that through whatever people's views of those conversations are that, you know, that's going to be filtered through any art that is seen. So I think that lots of people are going to bring perspectives and thoughts to the movie that were not necessarily being brought to it in the eighties. Again, you can disagree with those perspectives or not. Um, but I think the film completely stands up and holds up wonderfully. I, again, I think that different people will feel differently about it because of their own different perspectives. So, yeah, uh, you know, I absolutely agree. And I, I made a note in my notes that like, I think it's interesting because this film, every few years we get a new version whether it's a yeah. film, whether it's a musical, whether it's a non-Disney property with the, the one that took place in America this year that came out. Um, and they give us a new light on it. And I found in a lot of my research, um, I can't remember quite who said it, but there's this new Murphy's Law of the Internet where if something can be constructed, it is then going to be deconstructed and reconstructed. Yeah. And so this idea is... Why don't we, of course we can stick to that story, but you know, when you reconstruct it, there are little things that you can tweak. And so like you and I were both in New York in 2007. And so mermaid came out on Broadway, which was a huge deal. Like the fact that little mermaid was coming, beauty and the beast had just closed. Mm -hmm. Like just months Mm -hmm. before, I think it was a July, July or August beauty and the beast closing. And then little mermaid was November for previews. Um, And it was after a huge flop that was Tarzan. Um, and while, you know, we might also have seen Mermaid as a a success (laughs) and it was, it was great that it ran in the same theater that Beauty and the Beast did. Well, the second, uh, theater that Beauty and the Beast did, they made a lot of changes to the script. Well, side note, you want to know another cool piece of trivia? Um, when when Jody Benson was recording part of that world and you can see the footage of it, Ashman is giving her notes and she responds at one point, she's like, oh, so not like I'm belting it out at the Lunt Fontaine. Which is, she right. said that because that's where Smile was, that she was in, that was Howard Ashman's show. And subsequently, yep. that's where The Little Mermaid would be on Broadway. So, it, interesting It's so funny how these things worked out. Yeah, and it's so weird. Okay, so I like to consider that I have a, a large amount of theater knowledge. Anyone that knows me knows I could talk countlessly hours for about musical theater and theater in general. Um, I had no idea that Jodie Benson had a very nice Broadway career. And that's yeah, kind of where they did. found her. Yeah, yeah. No, so did. I feel I feel like a total sham now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but some cool things that I thought the musical did was they added some things back to the script. Now, a lot of times when you take a 90-minute movie, they tend to turn it into a two-and-a-half-hour musical, for better or for worse. Um, and like in this one, they put the familial relationship between Titan and Ur- Triton and Ursula back in, which had been cut from the movies uh, before. Um and so I Which thought that I was interesting. Yeah, but I don't that here's the thing. I really didn't enjoy the Broadway musical for a lot of reasons. I did not and, either. Yeah, and so things like that that they put in my question is why and what did it add? Um mm-hmm. cuz because I feel like it raised more questions than it potentially answered. Um, right. And also like in the service of the story, do we really care if Triton and Ursula are siblings? I don't, no. I, I don't know. I don't really think I, so. 
I think it could be a thing as to not demonize her as much as she's easily demonized and not make him, who's a pretty unlikable character, granted, single father with a whole bunch of daughters and a king, you know, that that's its own different sitcom. But, like, that's, you know, neither, you know, Triton is not as nearly a dynamic character as Ursula is. And so I think trying to put them on the same wavelength is difficult and not necessarily a thing unless they were going because that was the point where everybody was going you know it's okay to like the Disney villains yeah it's okay to like the Disney villains more than the princesses Mm -hmm. so I don't know if that's something they were trying to do if that was something when they because you know originally it was Emily Skinner then they had Sharon A. Scott and so it was one of those things I don't know if it was their way of being like well we need to have her in more of the musical than about 18 minutes uh you know she's she's not stacy jackson rock of ages um so you know it's i don't know if that was a thing but i mean ultimately a lot of people agree with us that like the musical was just not effective titus burgess titus burgess being known to the world was probably the you know the biggest benefit um i don't know norm lewis in that super sexy triton costume is really nice (laughs) um (laughs) um, side side note i then saw sierra bogus and norm lewis in phantom of the opera together where she was christine and he was the phantom and it was the most (laughs) awkward thing because i mean they're both amazing performers (laughs) the whole time i'm just sitting there like it's your dad it's your dad (laughs) i mean and that's also pretty much where people started to know who Sierra Bogus was and she was a great Ariel um but you know it's also it's it's I know you have to write more music but like how do you keep writing without Howard Ashman um you know I mean Um, you know Glenn Slater did a great job with the the new music but again it just didn't feel as cohesive as you know some of the other like Beauty and the Beast is just this thing that works really well on stage, oddly enough. And Aida is this beautiful thing that they were able to sculpt on stage. But like, you know, Tarzan didn't really work great for, you know, a Monica reasons. And then this, I think the production design for me uh, as a costume designer, the production design really got in the way of this Mm -hmm. show. The, the Heelys, I think every it's it's a giant joke in every costume shop I've ever worked in that we'll just put everybody in Heelys and it'll be great. Um, yeah. Well, and that came I out mean, as a response to there. There had been a lot of spectacle on Broadway and it had gotten yeah. a lot of criticism. And I remember when Francesca Zambello was uh, announced to direct, her big quote was, you know, no water, no wires. Like we're going to tell a really good story without crazy spectacle. And everybody had a great response to that. And they're like, oh, awesome. And then it came out and it was like, no, it's just really boring and the story doesn't hold up the way they're telling it. So yeah, there was no dramaturgy yeah. in the show. And I feel like they went, here's the interesting thing, because they were trying to be more politically correct and like feminist or whatnot because of some of yeah. the response to the movie. Me watching it, I thought it was way more anti-feminist than anything in the original movie because they didn't understand... I feel like they didn't understand why the things worked in the first place that did work. And they were trying to like put these little band-aids on things that for me just made it a million times worse. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And they're just, we need, we need a Howard Ashman. I've worked, I worked as the associate producer in the library of Congress songwriter series and worked as the associate producer on the Howard sings Ashman album. So I've worked with the Ashman estate. I don't think anybody realizes how, extraordinary he was how much we can Mm -hmm. completely thank him for the disney renaissance animators at the time were calling him the the new walt they said that he reminded them of walt and you needed a figure like that 
dramaturgically to spearhead this stuff and they just didn't have it after. And it was after Howard's passing when they started releasing movies that he had had no hand in whatsoever that Disney started to go downhill again. Right. Well, and that was the thing is because they worked so far in advance that he worked on Little Mermaid and um, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin as well. And so it was one of those things that like, so people had no idea that he'd even passed because that's also still when the crisis was at such a weird crush point. And it's, he's just another example of like, so many people that we lost, like he's a huge inspiration in like why I do musical theater, yeah. why I love performance and things just cause he's so, what he's done is just so breathtaking. Um, but it's, you know, it, it was hard. And now that like we're on the third, comp- like the third lyricist that's working with, um, Alan Menken, um, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about the new little mermaid coming out, mm-hmm. um, in just a bit, but, um, it was going to be hard, but, because you know, because most fans and critics did not like the original production, it led to the 2012 kind of reworking of the entire book of Little Mermaid right. um, by Glenn Casale, and you know, and I believe that was the production that ran at Paper Mill that like all of the Asian productions then based their designs on. There was the production of Buffalo, where they put Ariel on flies because yeah. they created the water, and honestly. It's so breathtaking. And that even led the, I believe, the Japanese and Korean productions to have Ariel's hair on the flywire the d- so that her d- hair floated straight up. I think did it first. It was extraordinary. It was I so think it's so cool. And then yeah. because then it, you, it's the only way you get that hair flip moment, which is one of those iconic things. And then they also were like, okay, we can't have a fire engine red wig. Let's root this in a little bit more of realism in this magical world, which, mm-hmm. you know, I thought was really cool. And, you know, so now this is that idea that, Disney films can live in a live action world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we, I could, I think I'm going to do just an episode on the uh, live action transition that Disney is taking right now oh. uh, because we are quote unquote at a, at a point for it. But I feel like no matter who we talk to, there'll be lots of conflicted things, but it is the 30th anniversary of little mermaid this year. And it's mm-hmm. been a huge hot topic on social media for months. Um, So we're getting two live action versions of Little Mermaid coming out. In the next month, we're getting the concert version for ABC with Queen Latifah and Alali uh, Carvalho. I believe Uh that's how I pronounce her. Who is Moana? She was Moana. I think it's a beautiful idea. I can listen to her sing for hours. And Queen Latifah as Ursula is an easy, easy choice that I love. Um, Side note, can we get a male Ursula? Like, please, can we get a drag queen as Ursula? Yeah, that's how so, the character needs to be. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, so, I think it's hard to not talk about both of these and talk about Ariel Gate, which I think is mm-hmm. proof of how much systemic racism there still is deeply ingrained in our society when people don't think they're racist for saying a mermaid can't be black. Uh, because, you know, we have the new live action film happening where we have this insanely talented African-American singing artist who's a great actress who's already kind of, she worked, you know, she's on a free form show. So she is part of the, you know, the Disney network who's going to play Ariel. And I think will be breathtaking and people are just being so awful about it. And even science trying to scientifically back their shitty racism up. Like I don't. I it, it it literally crushes me of 
how important this film could be for so for representation for so many little girls, little boys, um, little non-gender specific children that I just I can't believe people are so tied to kind of their nostalgia goggles that they are being so disgusting about this 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 choice. Well, I'd like to throw a couple things out there. First of all, Hermione Granger is going to come out. Um, I highly recommend yeah. everybody check out the book um, Mermaids, the Myth, Legends, and Lore by Skye Alexander. Um, she goes into a great analytical history of the mermaid myth um, worldwide. Africa has a very rich history of mermaid folklore and legends. Literally every culture in the world does. So um, the whole mermaids can't be black thing. Um, mermaids existed in folklore in every culture in the world. If you're going to get into canon, the Little Mermaid TV show, she had a friend who was a black, deaf mermaid, so it exists Mm -hmm. canonically as well. Mm -hmm. And also from a personal standpoint, I am largely Danish, so I feel like this is the one time that I can be like, you know, like, I, I I can actually be like... You know, all you people that are like, it's damaging the Danish culture. Now, I'm, I'm not a Danish citizen. I didn't grow up in Denmark, but the Danish culture is a huge part of my personal culture and my family culture. Um, it's not offending me, and I'm a Dane, so I have power and authority to make a statement about that. Um, I, I think it doesn't matter. The I mean, I understand the nostalgia thing in the same way that if, you know, the blowfish looked different. I might have a moment of like, oh, it looks different. And then I move on with my life, you know. <laughs> you yeah. acknowledge that. Um, I think it's wonderful casting. I actually think she looks amazingly like the animated drawing. Her eyes are exactly uh, the same. I agree. Um, I agree. And I can't wait to see what she does with it. I think, I'm sorry, I think this is racist, the whole thing. We've got to get over it. I highly doubt that these same people would be as vocal if they cast, say, a white person as Tiana in a live-action Princess and the Frog. So, you know, this isn't really about nostalgia or accuracy. It's it's well, not. And that's uh, that's flat out. So I did a little catfish-style digging um, mm-hmm. into a lot of these people because uh, it's really funny how public people's social media are. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these people in Disney forums, even, you know, around are the same people that were like, I just don't like Princess and the Frog because I didn't like the idea of a black Disney princess. Oh, you can't. T- my you, can't you can't tell me that that is not a deeply ingrained racist response. Oh, I don't care if you don't see yourself as racist. It's it's also just disgusting. So I'm going to give a little. Di- and so this year I went to Disneyland for the first time in March uh-huh. and I, uh, you know, it wasn't particularly hot, but I was getting a little tired on my third day. Yeah. So I finally went and made time to go watch the Frozen musical, the Hyperion, which was where, you know, where they worked some things out for Frozen Broadway. Yeah. And, you know, it's a one hour version of Frozen. And yeah. one of the, one of the wonderful performers that plays Elsa is African-American. And well, I got also, the pleasure friend, of seeing her. My friend Chris um, is African-American and played was one of the original um oh one of the original Kristoffs in that so yeah. I think that there's yeah. the diversity they had is phenomenal and here's my thing unless race is an integral part of the storytelling it doesn't matter like color purple should not have white people in the cast 
you know. Thank you. It, it, Once it, in this it, island, Once in this island should never have white people in it. I'm going to say know, that now. Once as, in this island should never have would, white people in it. As much as I would kill to play T-Moon, I should never play T-Moon in that show, you know. Um, exactly. But if, if race is not a part of the storytelling, it shouldn't matter. And I know that there's the whole argument about, like, historical accuracy and whatnot. Again, I feel like unless it's an integral part of the story, it shouldn't matter. You know, it, it, it really, it shouldn't because, like, guys, come on. Come on. Well, and, and I'm going to say, like, too, uh, being, you know, I, I have a, a minor in history was part of my degree because I figured, I don't know, it helps being a theater person um, right. and a designer. But honestly, there's been so much, you know, white European colonialism that is completely stolen and rewritten all of the heritage, all of the stories. It is stolen so much from so many countries that I was like, honestly, if some of these stories were never told with white people at the scope again, I'm fine with it because one, most of the time I never, as, as a plus size queer white individual, I rarely see myself represented within like white norms. And so like, I don't care about seeing that. I want also as someone that like does casting and directing, I just want the best person for the role. And if that means, if that means seeing a thousand girls a day, not you, you can't, but if I have to see a thousand girls for a role and we don't have to, you know, again, if, if race is not an integral part of the story, you know, if it's a traditionally white role that has no ties to a a race, why not see anyone for that role? Like, I just, I don't, I don't understand why people are, or this happened with Hermione and Cursed Child. Yeah. Like that actress is, She's so mind-blowing. She's done so many amazing British television roles and film roles that, like, when I saw that she was cast, I went, duh, she's brilliant. And I loved her when I saw her in in London in the show. It was – she was brilliant. And I I think it's just so – it's a systemic issue that is so deeply ingrained no one realizes that it's such an ingrained part of our society. Well, and I think part of it is you you started to talk about it is so many – so many groups – have had to get used to seeing themselves in characters um, that are very different from them. Like every woman Mm -hmm. has gotten very used to identifying with male leads in films. Every queer person has gotten used to identifying with a straight character or whatnot. It's when the groups that have never had to do that suddenly have to do that, that they Mm -hmm. suddenly have a problem with it. Like, Mm-hmm. Black people have had to imagine themselves in white roles since, like, practically the dawn of time. Most white yeah. people have not had an experience where I have to relate to a black character. And it's like, sud- suddenly that's that's not a thing they can do. It's like, I'm, I'm sorry, you should be able to relate to any character, regardless of mm-hmm. their gender, how they look, mm-hmm. what their sexuality is. It's called developing empathy. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, and, and I think that that's a big thing, too. And I also, I feel so bad for this girl, Halle Bailey. Um, it seems like she's dealing with this with such grace and poise, but I can only imagine what's going on inside her head and her heart. And it, I just, this should be, like, the greatest thing that's ever happened to her in her life. And the entire yeah. world is turning around and being like, we don't want you as this yeah. role that I'm sure is your dream role. and it's cruel and it's not okay. And we have got, we've got to start changing. Also side note, as somebody who's obsessed with lots of fairy tales, you know, going with Joseph Campbell and whatnot, these fairy tales 
have existed in a version in every culture in the world. You know, if you mm-hmm. go to the library in the kids section, there is the African Cinderella and the Chinese Cinderella and you know, mm-hmm. the European Cinderella. And these, this isn't a writer placing the story in these places. This is people collecting the Cinderella story from that culture and writing it down. I would right. love to see the live action African Cinderella and Chinese Cinderella and, and whatnot. Like let's start telling the fairy tales from all these cultures and realize that it's a universal thing. I just, absolutely. I, the, whole, the whole thing makes me so angry. Yeah. I so. mean, and a lot of it, a lot of it is also people then go, well, if we're talking about Disney, you know, there is a less than desirable past of representation and things. And so right. while I don't, you know, I'm going to do a whole episode on this later. I hope you guys are ready for that. Um, that, you know, I think it's, this is a point where it needs to be acknowledged and then moving on from it and doing better. And I think this is a way that they can do better. But just going back to when I saw Frozen, there was a little girl sitting behind me. She was very sweet. She was tapping on my shoulder. She liked my shirt. And then when Elsa, a grown Elsa came out, she went, she like shrieked and I thought something was wrong. And she went, she went, mommy, mommy, she looks just like me. And I almost cried just because like, I thought how beautiful that is that like she loves Elsa. She met white Elsa the day before she, you know, she met animated Elsa, but in theater and honestly, it's something we've been doing for years. We had so many black bells during Mm -hmm. the run of Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of those things that like, I, why can't it be like, I just, or, you know, I'm going to reference the 97 Cinderella with Brandy. Mm-hmm. Like that was the that was a prime example of just casting who was right for every role. And right. they're a beautiful cast. That is my favorite version of Cinderella. Sorry, mm-hmm. people. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but like, you know, it's one of those things is it's like, why when we're doing these things? Why? Or when they did Annie, the fact that Grace was played by Audrey McDonald. Like yeah. for Wonderful World of Disney, that was a huge thing that a lot of people hadn't seen. Mm-hmm. And if you were being an ass and just sticking to like, well, in the 1920s, 1930s, and instead of just letting, I could listen to Audra sing a Thai food menu. Like honestly, because yeah. you it's know one of those things that black people have existed for all of human history, and they were there in those places too. Unless the stories about. Daddy Warbucks and Grace Farrell can't be together because of race issues in the 1930s. It shouldn't matter. Like, guys, right. come on. Exactly. And it wasn't because it's about an adorable little redhead girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so we've talked about it. We've talked about it a little, Ashley, and it's been become huge. And it was particularly when Frozen came out in 2014 mm-hmm. that people started saying we need to recognize Little Mermaid as a feminist film, which right. made me go, do we is this, you know, also some of the uh, uh, study women's gender sexuality studies in undergrad and, and mm-hmm. it informs a lot of the theater that I do. You know, I was really skeptical reading a lot of uh, articles and there's particularly one great one by Gwen Watkins. Everyone should go read. And I'm having a conversation with her now about, you know, five years after she she wrote this article. Um but, like, I guess just on start off, do you particularly see The Little Mermaid as a feminist film? Well, so here's the thing with feminism, and I, I am an avid feminist, and I think that everybody should be. Um, I think that when you start getting into labels about what is feminist and what isn't, 
I think you're getting into dangerous territory. Um, I mean, just look at the arguments about, you know, second wave feminism, third wave feminism, are these feminists, you know, whatnot. At the end of the day, I think if something inspires you as a woman to feel more powerful in your identity or inspires you as somebody who's not a woman to have more empathy and support for women, I think it's feminist. Mm -hmm. And so I think that some things might be feminist to one person where they might not be to somebody else. So I I think it becomes very dangerous to put general labels on something because Mm -hmm. I think our definitions of things start to change. Like when Sucker Punch came out, there was so much controversy about that film. And some people were like, this is an anti-feminist movie and it's objectifying these women. Some women were like, I felt very empowered by this film. So I think, I think it's, I don't want to put any general labels on it. I think it's a personal thing. I, I feel that it empowered me. So in that sense, I do think that it was feminist. Other people might feel differently. Um, I think, but I think that we need to be careful that unless something is very clearly a misogynistic piece that is extraordinarily problematic, I think maybe we need to be careful with our labels and sort of just let it inspire the people it's going to inspire and have conversations with the people that it maybe doesn't do that with. So. Great. No, I completely agree. Now, as I was reading, of course, I was being a contrarian like I Mm -hmm. am sometimes. It is a fault. Um, But what she did was do this beautiful crafting where she was like, oh, you think I was going to run this way? Let's run that way. And her main point was at the end of the day, Ariel doesn't actually leave the sea for Eric. Eric is the inciting issue, uh, the inciting yeah. incident of why she finally is like, I have to do this. I have to do this for myself. But she is an educated woman mm-hmm. who, you know, has, you know, a little privilege, whatever that means, uh, for, for, you know, for a mermaid kingdom. But she is this avid collector and explorer and yep. is so interested in the world above, even though she might be incredibly ignorant about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the way she looks at it, but she's so involved in them her main point which she brings up as an example is if she was purely driven by eric and love for this man she would have thrown herself at his feet the moment she hit land and groveled and done the old school projection of what women are which is not what i think they are and she would have won the day she would have gotten him to kiss her and that would have been it but she explores. She is living life. I mean, she's even sleeping in giant comfy beds, which yeah. is something I guess I take for granted that maybe sleeping inside a clam isn't that comfortable. Um, or what does that mean in water? I don't know. Physics, weird. Um, but it's that idea that like she goes to the surface. Yes, Eric is there. Yes, he's the point. But she's so wrapped up in exploring that it's kind of her undoing. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, you know, she still gets so close that. Um, Ursula feels she needs to take things into her own hands because she ultimately has something else planned. But ultimately, I think I have to agree that, like, if it's a feminist film for you, then it's a feminist film. If you don't think it's a feminist film, it's not a feminist film. Um, because it's that idea of projecting things onto things once they've been done, once they're, you know, a period piece. Um because we want to talk about period piece. Let's talk about that wedding dress. Uh, yeah. <laughs> pure 80s. Um, but yeah, I think it's those things. But I think if it is important to someone and it is really important for them to define it as a feminist film than define it as a feminist film. I do think, I do think the idea of like independent femaleness was projected better in old, uh, you know, more recent Disney movies, but like 
we couldn't have had a Rapunzel and a Tiana or an Anna without Ariel. We well, couldn't have had Belle and Mulan without Ariel. Here's the in, thing. In the structure. No, it's true. Um, and this is going to be a controversial statement. I felt <gasps> that Anna was a less feminist character for me than Ariel. And I'll tell you why. Um, and this is getting into, you know, the readings of The Little Mermaid and she's, you know, giving her voice for a man. So I feel like a lot of these views of the film come from adults who maybe haven't seen it, actually watched it from beginning to end in a long time. Because that's not the story of what happens in The Little Mermaid. And I think that we also, and this also is controversial, I think that we have, as a culture in general, kind of stopped collectively reading stories from any sort of metaphoric place. It's become very it's become very literal. You see this with a lot of people online with the live action Disney films of, you know, all the teeny teeny tiny little plot holes that they like take umbrage with with, you know, these need to be fixed and why about this and why about that? So here's the actual story of the Disney Little Mermaid. And this is the way that I read it. I'm certainly not saying that it couldn't be read other ways. I'm not discounting anybody else's views of it, but from a structural standpoint, this is what it is. You have a character who is feels like she doesn't belong in the world that she's in. She's obsessed with the human world. She desperately wants to be a part of it. She's constantly taking chances and risking, you know, her the status quo to be a part of it. Eric is not the inciting incident. Her I Want song comes before she ever meets Eric, and it has nothing to do with a man. It's I want to be somewhere where I feel like I belong. Eric becomes the inciting incident, and it becomes a catalyst because it's what it's going up to see the ship and whatnot is the reason that she then breaks her father's rules again when it becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back. She doesn't, she, she doesn't like see this boy and then like, Oh, I'm going to go sacrifice my voice or whatnot. She's a teenager mm-hmm. who has her first crush and she's acting like a teenager mm-hmm. who has her first crush. And all she's talking about is, Oh, I want to swim up to the surface and see him again and whatnot in the same way that she was with, ships and scuttle and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What really what the little mermaid is about is the relationship between Triton and Ariel, because really the inciting incident is Triton shows up in her grotto and trashes it and becomes abusive to her. Mm -hmm. He threatens her. He's scary. He destroys everything that she places value in and then abandons her. Okay. Even then, Ariel's not like, screw you, I want my boy, I'm going to go do this thing. She is seduced and manipulated by Flotsam and Jetsam, who have an agenda from Mm -hmm. Ursula, who is clearly trying to do... And Ursula even says that she can use Eric to be Triton's undoing. And here's the reason why I always found... One of the reasons why I always found Ursula a fascinating villain. All of the things that people have issues with with this movie about, you know just wanting a man and selling your voice for a man. Those are all ideas that are instigated by Ursula in a way Mm -hmm. that is villainous, in a way that is creepy, that in a way for me as a child watching it, when she's saying things like, you know, men don't like girls who talk, you know, you have body language. To me, these all felt wrong, scary, and bad. These were not good things. These were things to be terrified and wary of. But by that point... Ariel's in a position where her father has been abusive to her. She has nowhere left to go. She feels she's been abandoned by all of her friends. 
and she has no other option. Like her safety to a degree might also be in danger. That might be going a little too far, but as somebody who's had to deal with violence in her life, it was something that I, you know, felt was resonant. And Ursula forces her into this situation because she feels she has no other option. Anything that's wrong with the situation is something that Ursula introduces into the situation, which is a very different thing also from the original story. So Ariel's then on land, and you're right. She's fascinated with the human world. She's excited by all those things. She's not purely focused on getting Eric. She's, you know, being awkward and quirky and (laughs) and adorable. And and this was something else that resonated with me as a kid. Eric still likes her. Those things that Ursula yeah. says about they don't like girls that, you know, this and that and whatnot. Eric still likes her to the point where Ursula's like, shit, my plan's not going well. I have to do something else. And the something else she has to do is full on hypnotize him, you know? Then then it all, you know, starts continuing. Then you finally get in a situation where Triton sacrifices himself for his daughter because he's now mm-hmm. put her in a situation where he has to do that. The whole Eric rescuing her thing, I never saw that as Eric rescuing her. It was like, by that point, this guy better freaking do something to prove that he's worthy of this girl. It was one of the things that I found problematic, actually, in the musical, is Eric kind of sat around like a wet dishcloth the whole time. And it's like, dude, this, like, what, like, you're not worthy of this, of this person. Um, And then Ursula gets defeated. And then here's the thing. We go right back to stasis one of the beginning of the movie. Ariel is still a mermaid. She still can't be a part of the human world. And the change that happens is that Triton realizes that he has to let go of her daughter and allow her to be the person that she's meant to be. And the other thing that was very impactful for me as a child is when Ursula changes Ariel into a human, it's violent, it's scary, it looks painful, and she's in danger from it. Mm-hmm. When Triton changes her, it's beautiful. She's clothed in this gorgeous gown. She's not like thrown up on the beach all vulnerable and naked. And so for me, it had a very powerful message of the things that you desire in themselves are not bad and they're not things to be ashamed of. There is a healthy way to go about getting them and there's a negative way to go about getting them. So if you're talking, right. the thing it actually, for me, I think taught me about relationships and romance is if you're talking about that, although I don't think that that's the central point of what The Little Mermaid's about, that love and relationships and sex and all of that stuff, those things are not bad things. They can be gone after in a healthy, positive way or in a negative, damaging way. And mm-hmm. all of those things that Ursula represented we're damaging unhealthy things like giving up your voice, like sacrificing things, like doing things that are painful. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's sort of what I feel about the Disney movie. The thing that's really different about frozen that I think people forget Anna's want at the beginning of the movie is to find a man. Her, I want song is maybe I'll meet the love of my life tonight. Yep. And for me, that's the big difference. And that's the thing that's problematic. The only thing Anna wants at the beginning as articulated, I mean, yes, she wants her sister. She wants to not be alone, but specifically articulated, she wants to meet a man. That is the very first time in any Disney movie where that has been the want for a princess or for any female protagonist. From that want, it then makes sense that the journey she goes on is 
that was a damaging desire and that real love was always here. But I think it's really problematic to be like, yay, Disney dealt with the just wanting a man thing in Frozen when it was so problematic in other movies. In no other movie is the heroine's desire. (laughs) In no other movie is that the heroine's desire. And that's the thing. If Ariel was singing at the beginning about like, I want to meet a human man and get married, that's an entirely different story. And so when people say like, I don't want to show this to my kids or whatnot, I think they're doing a disservice because I think fairy tales can speak to you on a very powerful level. And I don't think that necessarily children are watching this with the prejudice. I I, I mean, prejudices in the, in the technical sense, not in like a a contradictory, negative, um, critical sense um, that we sometimes put on it. Um, And I think that the second with anything, unless it's developmentally inappropriate or or very violent, or there's a lot of sex in it or something, I think it's very dangerous when we start censoring what we're showing our children, you know, because lots of people find different, reasons to do it. I'm not going to let my kids read Harry Potter because of magic. I'm not going to let them watch The Little Mermaid because of the relationship thing. I, I've heard of families that were very conservative that didn't let their kids watch The Little Mermaid because she wore a bra top and it was sexually inappropriate. <laughs> you know, we can we can come up with a million and one theoretical reasons why we don't want to show our kids stuff. I think it's far more powerful to let them watch anything that could potentially be uplifting and should any issues arise, wonderful. Let's have a great conversation about it. But in all honesty, I have never met a child who interpreted any Disney movie as being about wanting to get a man. It's only the right. parents that are then sort of putting it on afterward. And so I take, I, have, I take a lot of umbrage with that idea and that philosophy and also re- reducing Little Mermaid to, oh, she sold her voice for a man. That's 100% not what the story is. The story is, it, it's, it's the, for me, it's the antithesis of that. So that's my long-winded right. analysis of well, that. Well, no, I think, I think it's a great idea, and I agree. But, you know, it's interesting. In a, one of the articles I read that was comparing Frozen to Little Mermaid, is she was honestly like, um, Anna is a representation of the people that have watched Disney films since they were little and yeah. only take away the romance and love portion of them. So in that way, Anna is playing that archetype that then flips around and goes, oh, there's so much more to this journey than just finding someone who uh, is loved or right. to love me because it's also she didn't have her parents Elsa had to remove herself. So it's like. Anna probably never really felt love in her life except from her compulsive eating issues with chocolate, which is a whole other thing. Um, You know, and I just want to preface this for everyone. We're not demonizing Frozen. I'm going to do a Frozen episode. I can't wait for Frozen 2. We're just saying that, like, when you start comparing and contrasting Disney films in a less than effective way... Um, it's it's not going to help because we need a way to effectively talk about it. And and if you watch Little Mermaid and only see it as like she sold her voice for a man, talk to me. We'll do a play analysis workshop. It'll be fun. But I had a friend yeah. on Facebook who was like, after I let my daughter watch Little Mermaid for the first time, and we're sitting there and, and I go, do we need to talk about it? And she just goes, mommy, she's a mermaid and I want to be a mermaid. That's why I like the movie. Yeah. And I was like, oh. That's what kids take away from it. Kids, yeah. we project all of this stuff onto kids, and I think we just need to let kids be kids. But I'm yeah. not a parent, so I don't know. But, well, well, you know, and, I'm, the, yeah. I'm the... Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, and, you know, there's so many people who have been very deeply moved by these movies. I think it's also dangerous to potentially 
take that opportunity away from a child because of some of these other things. The only Disney movie I think you might be able to make that argument with is Snow White. And Snow White is a whole other issue because, which I, we should totally do a whole other thing on Snow White, but Snow White was purely there to try to see if you could do a live action animated film at all and was coming out of the melodrama universe. It was not, and it's, it's entirely metaphoric. The whole thing is heightened and metaphoric and whatnot, but it's, I think I think we're getting into into some issues with these movies that, for me, yeah. I don't think actually exist and aren't really there. Um, I agree. I agree. And honestly, we can't look at any of the – you can't look at any Disney movie or any movie period without looking at the year it came out and looking socio and politically of what's happening in the world at the same time, which exactly. is kind of the point of what I want to do with this podcast is talk about where we are, why these things are happening, and yeah. and what's going on. Well, Ashley, it has been such a delight to have you on the show. We've been trying to collaborate literally forever. Um, And so is there anything – you are the busiest person I know. Uh, Is there anything coming up that you want to plug? This episode's going to broadcast like two weeks, three weeks after we record. So is there anything you want to plug coming up? Sure. Um, I have a bunch of projects that I actually am not at liberty to talk about. Um, but it, if you go to if you go to my website, AshleyGriffinOfficial.com, Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N, yes, like Gryffindor, um, there will be updates about all that. The, the one thing I can talk about that's definitely happening is um, a new show of mine is going up at the Triad in January. Um, and I think tickets will start being on sale next week. So that'll be fun and exciting. And I'm getting a little bit back to my comedy roots with it because um, I've spent the past like three years just doing very dark, intense, intense drama. So this this will be nice. But then I have some other really incredible things in the works that I can't talk about. But I'm also the host of my own podcast called Stage Directions on the Onstage Blog Network, if anybody would like to subscribe and listen to my Hermione Grangerness. I'm actually about to do a two-part series just analyzing fairy tales in general on it. Ooh, um, everybody go listen. Yeah, but come, um, come, go to my website, and there are links to all my social media on there and stuff, and just come, come follow and stalk me, and we can talk about all fairy tale things and little mermaid things and, and whatnot. And, and I hope I get to come back and talk to you about more fun Disney stuff. Cause you're, you're awesome and amazing. And it's delightful talking to you. Thanks. Well, we're definitely already on the books for a snow white episode in the future. So everybody have that to look forward to actually yes. I look forward to talking to you about that, but thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for tuning in, Dreamers. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to tell all your friends on social media, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, leave us a five-star review. Then jump on over, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and then jump all the way over to our Patreon, where only $5 a month pledge gets you two bonus episodes, lots of discounts, and a couple free goodies. And don't forget, you can find show notes and research references for all of our episodes at dolewhippingdreamspod.com. Now join us next time as your guests Ned Donovan and I go to the seedy underbelly of Victorian England as we discuss the great mouse detective. Until next time, dreamers, may your days be filled with dull whip and dreams.